She's, she's dead. You killed her. I didn't mean to kill her. Really, I didn't. It's, it's just that he was on fire. Hail to Dorothy. The wicked witch is dead. Hail! Hail to Dorothy. The wicked witch is dead. The broom. May we have it? Please, and take it with you. Oh, thank you so much. Let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch at last is dead. We've seen. This is your host, James Kent, and along for the ride, <laughs> here he is, the Prince of Hiccups, Jill. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? Oh, you, you, you heard about my uh, hiccup experience, huh? Well, you wrote about it on Facebook. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> and then you were telling about this guy, the great Dave Sarginian. He, the great Dave Sarginian. Yeah, he taught me how to, uh, how to cure my hiccups. Yeah, that this is weird. So you stick your fingers in your ears yes. and then you drink water? Yes. How do you t- how do you put fingers in both ears and then drink water? Like, <laughs> so what I do is I put my thumbs in my ears. Okay. And then I reach forward and pick up the glass <laughs> with my drink. fingers and while I've got my th- and you got to get a good seal when you're plugging your ears. Okay. <laughs> so you plug your ears with your thumbs and then you hold the glass with your fingers and then you just drink slowly. It, it works every time. That's amazing. See, if you'd only just given that tip to that girl who hiccuped constantly right. that time, she might not have uh, got involved with the wrong kids and killed somebody. Um, <laughs> well, people look it up. Okay, you know that I'll story. have to look it up. That's... You don't know that story? No. There was this girl made famous that she hiccuped all the time. They did news shows on okay. her and everything, and she couldn't. Well, you know, obviously you don't have as many friends when all you do is hiccup. That's right. Well, she got in with the wrong crowd. and uh, Okay. They ended up, I don't know how, I don't know all those details, but she ended up murdering somebody. Wow. Yeah, they got her involved in something. Oh, man. And hiccups are so, such a scourge on our nation. Yeah. So thank you, Dave Sarginian, <laughs> saving people from hiccup plight. One person at a time. Okay. Well, hey, look, just to start the show, I want to thank again the great Craig Wasson for. Yes. Uh, two amazing episodes that, uh, well, I mean, we taped it all at once, but two amazing episodes that he did with us. It was just fantastic. Yes, absolutely amazing episodes. Loved talking to that guy. Just a wonderful guy. Great, thoughtful person. And funnies. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. He's so funny, and his impersonations were just amazing. Like, yes. I'm kind of like, I want to know what else he does. <laughs> so we'll have to have him back on. Okay, so I got a whole list of fun things. Okay. Uh, We're going to have a couple of movies that we are going to get to. We're going to feature two new films that are Mm -hmm. out uh, that we're going to get to later in the program. One will be News of the World, the uh, Tom Hanks vehicle with uh, director Paul Greengrass. Mm -hmm. And we are going to talk The Promising Young Woman with uh, Carrie Mulligan, directed by Emerald Fennell. That one's kind of heating up the film discussion these days. Uh, Oh, it is. Okay. Oh, you you don't know anything. Oh, both these movies, Promising Young Woman, I knew nothing. 
Are you serious? I knew nothing. That's I even knew, better. I knew the title know. and I and I saw the poster and that's it. If this was one of those normal years where we were just kind of diving into end of the year films and people are going to see them, I think there would be a lot of conversation about that film. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's definitely something that we're going to talk about today. But I want to start off mm-hmm. with a little recommendation. Oh. And I do this, well, for the audience, but also for you, because if we talk, if I just talk it up a little bit, you might be intrigued to watch it. Mm-hmm. And it's a film from this past year, 2020. And I caught on demand, and it's called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a sort of a horror dark comedy. And it I didn't know anything more about that. I honestly, there was the title, Wolf of Snow Hollow. And, <laughs> and that's all you knew. <laughs> well, I knew that, and my wife likes the horror. And a few months back, we watched the trailer for it. And it looked like, yeah, this looks entertaining. And we finally said, oh, we got to watch that. So, <laughs> so we did. And it's only like 90 minutes, which okay. is perfect for a horror movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And I really didn't know. I, I, I honestly, I sat on the couch sort of kind of half pay attention to the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd give it a minute or two right. and then I'd probably scroll on the phone while she enjoyed it. And it's directed by this guy named Jim Cummings. He also wrote it. Okay. And he stars in it. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know anything about this guy. I didn't know he directed. I didn't know he was in the movie. I, but very quickly in this film, I immediately was taken by the level of sophistication of the filmmaking for a low-budget film. Oh, interesting. Okay. And the level of humor, the kind of dark humor in the movie instantly made me sit up, take notice, especially the performance by the lead guy who was this sheriff's son. And I'm like, this guy's kind of funny and he's really interesting to watch yeah. and he's deadpan and I've never seen him before. Who is this guy? And I had to go look up the actor and that was when I found out it's Jim Cummings who also wrote and directed it. Fascinating. Okay. The, uh, this movie also features the very last screen performance by Robert Forster. Oh, really? At some point in the movie, he kind of disappears and I think there's an indication that, that his character dies. But they don't really make it clear. And I'm wondering if he just had, oh. he, he got sick and couldn't fi- finish filming. So right. he found a way. It wasn't necessary for him to be in the rest of the movie. But he kind of disappears. Yeah. Huh. And I think that's probably what happened. He He's amazing in it. The film, to me, is everything I want out of a horror type movie. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's so funny, but not a, an absurdist way. Because it's not so much, yes, the, the, the thing about the the wolf in this snow community, but the guy who's playing the sheriff, he refuses to believe that there could be anything supernatural going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's also, believe it or not, it's a, it's a film about male toxicity. Oh, great. And and, and that <laughs> just the idea of like the werewolf and attacking. Oh, there's, right. There's definitely, um, there's a, a lot of subtext going on. And his character- this guy, Jim Cummings, he is a policeman who's a recovering alcoholic. Okay. And his life, he's barely holding it all together. And then this whole werewolf thing comes in and it just totally wrecks it because he becomes obsessed with trying to figure out the mystery. It is amazing. This okay. movie is so fantastic. I mean, I, I, I should have just felt like at the end, I might be like, oh, it was good for life. I love this movie. Okay. I'm, it's next on my list. I, I've been looking forward to it. So this is a good recommendation. I loved it so much and my wife loved it so much that as soon as the film was over, we immediately went to Amazon Prime and found his previous film that he made that he also wrote and starred and directed called Thunder Road. Yes. Okay. 
he plays another off-kilter guy, another policeman who is trying to hold it together but barely can. And it's we haven't finished it yet. We, we, got, we got sidetracked. But it is another really interesting performance. Okay. So this is a fascinating guy we've, you've stumbled on here. This is, to me, what the show is about is finding filmmakers and their movies that yeah. give me what I've been looking for. <laughs> Okay, so this is definitely a guy to follow. He is. I think you're going to like, I don't know, I, I, I can't say you're going to like, I just, I'm very curious to hear what you think of this movie. Okay, well, you will find out on the next episode. Okay, perhaps. and then we can talk more about it, because um, you'll then be, have more of a refreshed memory. Yes. Okay, another little recommendation. I'll be very quick on this. And you know what? Look, maybe it's something in me, but I have found <laughs> uh-huh. in the recent <laughs> weeks and months a little hard to watch certain content. Yeah. That might stress me out. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean there. Uh, I, you know, that's why I sometimes watch just total dumbass movies. Yeah. I mean, you goes right. Cause there's some films that my wife and I, or shows that we want to watch. And I say, I do want to watch this, but I just, I can't right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to include that. I guess I've been looking for something that just, man, makes you feel good. Yeah. And maybe talks about sort of the the niceness in human condition. What? There's a movie like this? No, it's a TV show. Oh, it's a TV show. Okay. And my (laughs) wife heard about it because people where she works were talking all about this and it's on Apple Plus. And I don't really go to Apple Plus very often to find shows. And I'd heard the name and I knew who was in it, but that was it. And it's a show called Ted Lasso by, uh, with Jason Sudeikis. I've heard the name of it. That's about all I know of it, though. The premise is is that he is a guy, a coach from the Midwest, coaches football, and has a very good, like, you know, sort of team-winning type spirit. And he is commissioned to go across the pond to England to coach a English soccer team. Okay. But the thing is, he knows nothing about soccer, <laughs> right. and there should be no reason why, except <laughs> why that- a football coach would be, yeah. Yeah, there shouldn't be, but the, the new owner, she is a tough-as-nails owner. She's going through a terrible divorce with her rich, obnoxious ex-husband- who okay. was the owner of the team, and it was his pride and joy. Oh, and she gets it in the divorce? She does. And so she decides that she wants to ruin his dream. <laughs> and so her first step is to hire. So it's like uh, it's like the producer. Kind of. But the problem <laughs> she doesn't expect is this Ted Lasso guy, he has this infectious quality of just plain niceness. Okay, right. And so he wins everyone over and figures it out. And you'd think your dad would get boring, but I got to tell you, it was warming my heart because he's so genuine, so funny, so darn to earth. And, but there's, there's sort of like a, you know, behind the scenes, he knows that just loving people, believing people and showing them kindness is a way to bring unity and bring, you know, team and ship together. Um, and so we've really enjoyed the past few weeks diving into this 10 episode series. Okay. And I really just think that, you know, people are looking for something that's just going to make them feel good. People are looking for that. Ted Lasso will make you feel good. I've read articles about how, you know, for the last year of the pandemic that really that's the kind of content that's doing well. The depressing stuff is not, uh, not getting as many streamers. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if other, if it wasn't for the pandemic, would I have, uh, I had obviously heard about this show, but I didn't even 
didn't even know what it was about. My viewing experience is uh, affected by what's going on in the world. Yes. And so, like, sometimes I think it's weird when I watch a show and they're not wearing masks. Oh, that, that's a whole that's a whole nother episode. We could talk about that it, because it's a whole nother episode, it is weird. But, but, you know, and then like we're going to talk about news of the world. But you totally think about that in terms of what's going on these days. There is some subtext in that film. Sure. Sure. Um, actually, I would say that to me, that's some of the most interesting parts of that movie. Yeah, I would agree. Yep. So now this is this is one of those things I call it the plate of shrimp, which is some, <laughs> okay. a term yes. from Repo Oh, Man. yeah. yeah. I, I, I witnessed this happening earlier in the week. Yeah. So. There's a film. It's a big favorite of mine. A Master and Commander, yes. uh, The Far Side of the World. Love it. I just think it's a perfect movie, honestly. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've watched it many times. I don't have a single flaw in the film. I would agree. Top to bottom, this thing is just perfect. And yet it wasn't a big hit. No, it didn't. And Because I was really hoping for a sequel. Me too. That's what drives me mental, that there's no sequel. Yeah, and they had planned sequels. I know. But you can see that the the production must have cost a fortune, and it did oh, yeah. because it, everything's on the screen. <laughs> and it's funny because just that summer, sailing movies and pirates and such were big again because Pirates of the Caribbean became right. the, the sleeper hit. But maybe everybody you know would rather watch skeletons on a. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really don't understand why Master and Commander didn't do better. I don't know. I think there's there's this weird thing that people feel like it'll be an investment of their patience to watch a movie about. Uh, you know, naval ships in the late 1800s right. uh, or early 1800s. So my youngest, we thought it popped up on Amazon Prime recently. And we said, oh, check it out. Yeah. So we started watching it and no. And we, you know, we watch it installments because he has to go to sleep and everything. So no sooner did we watch like the first 40 minutes of the movie later that night. My, my <laughs> wife is like, hey, there's this uh, Twitter thing going on with Russell Crowe that he's scolding some young kid who said that Master and Commander was boring. And uh, and I was like, that's insane. That Not insane that he scolded <laughs> right, the person, right, right. but that, that this kid, I'm like, what's going on with kids today? They don't have the patience. I mean, Master and Commander starts off with this awesome battle. <laughs> it does. It's an exciting movie, I think. I thought it was funny that this thing kind of took legs for a couple of days and we watched the movie while this was happening over the series of a few days. And now it's really fresh in my mind. And I was just I want to say for people who haven't seen it, I think this movie is so fantastic because one of the things it does besides give us a, a rollicking adventure movie right. is I, I call it, it it's it's very lived in. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, because you feel you are back in time because I've never seen a movie set on a ship before that has such amazing detail of the processes. Right. And what the what the people looked like and the ages of the people. Yeah. Uh, everything about this movie, it, I don't know how accurate it is or isn't, but it feels so authentic. I think it is pretty, you know, it's based on those books. Yeah. And that guy did some serious research. And I just, you know, to me, this is Russell Crowe's best performance for me anyway. Interesting. As Captain Jack Aubrey. I think he just, he puts in a lot of stuff. I mean, sure, maybe there's not as many emotional arcs that have to go on, but I just feel like there's a lot going on with this character and he's able to kind of disappear into that role. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. 
his relationship with Dr. Stephen um, Mataron, which is played by Paul Bettany, is such a great. Oh, yes. These two men and of different sort of beliefs. One's more of a ship captain traditionalist and the other one is sort of a scientist. Um, and they kind of match wits, but they have a real camaraderie and a respect for each other. I, I'm, it's coming back to me now. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. So the one Russell Crowe performance that I think would give Master and Commander a run for its money is The Insider. You know, it's an interesting and complex performance, but it doesn't have a lot of emotional range. The Insider? Yeah. Oh, I disagree. I think it, He's very reserved. Yeah, but that's what's cool is that he, it, there's so much emotion going on underneath in that with this really reserved character, I find. That's why I think it's a great performance. Well, I didn't say it's not a great performance. I'm just saying for me, <laughs> Master and Commander okay. is his best performance, in my opinion. I also really like him in L.A. Confidential. Yep. And, you know, I mean, Gladiator, that's just not my bag, but he's good in it. I mean, but I would rather have seen him win Best Actor for Master and Commander than for Gladiator. And the real crime is he didn't even get nominated for Master and Commander. I know. And I, I'm not a big fan of Gladiator. No, but we don't need to talk about Gladiator. We're going to continue talking about <laughs> Master and Commander and this amazing Oscar-winning cinematography by Russell Boyd. Oh, yes. I, I mean, you said lived in, but, you know, what the impression that this movie, it, these are real boats. Well, that's the thing is, I know there's got to have been special effects somewhere, but like. There are, but you don't, it doesn't feel like, okay, Gladiator, you can see the special effects. Exactly. And in Master and Commander, if they're there. They're invisible. It feels like two boats are firing cannonballs at each other, and it's insane. Yes. And there's a battle at the end that just rewatching it, it, it again, it's just, it's fantastic. There is so many fascinating things that happen in this movie about the way that, you know, the superstitions that existed on the boat. Right. And the way people felt luck would change. And what's really interesting is that there's this one guy who is just not in command of his people on the ship and they give him a really hard time and they blame him for all the things and you know he kind of uh it, it doesn't go well for him because of that and as soon as he kind of meets his fate it seems like that the tide is turning for their luck and they get the right. wind back in the sails however just a couple of minutes later something happens to the doctor on board and it just shows you that yeah, weird set of luck. It has nothing to do with one person or anything. Right. Um, and then that that features one of the, the – the scene is so fantastic where uh, Paul Bettany has to do an operation on himself. Oh, I'd forgotten – yes, that is an amazing scene. And they have to like hold up a mirror right. and he has to look at it and has to think about having to operate backwards. Yeah. And he does that because the only other person who could do it, he is so bad that basically Paul Bettany is looking and he's like, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I would die otherwise. And you see Russell Crowe, he's, he can't even watch while he's holding the mirror. But at the same time, he his this is where I think is such a great performance is you see on his face, he doesn't want his friend to die because it's the most important person on the ship for him. Right. And that he keeps wrestling with duty, and the, and whereas uh, Paul Bettany wants to be on the island at the Galapagos so he can study, right, right, and he and he feels bad that they didn't do that, and then Russ, uh, Paul Bettany gets shot, and now to recuperate, they go back to the island because Russell Crowe realizes that his friend is more important than the duty to chase the Akron, right. 
and of course then uh, then magnificent things set up uh, the 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 final climax and then even the ending it ends on such a perfect note where the chase has to go back on and for very interesting reasons and there's just this great battle of wits between Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany and the way that they uh, play together the uh, violin and sort of the fiddle and the bass uh, throughout the movie. It's just, again, this whole movie, I love it, love it, love it, love it. So 21st century masterpiece. Came out in 2003, right? I know. It's hard to believe that it's going to be 18 years this coming fall. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so we're almost ready, almost ready to talk about our big movies. You got a few others uh, on your on your hit list here first? I do. I want to confess, I've only seen a half an hour of this film, but I want to <laughs> mention it because it's a little bit of a gripe that I've been talking about. Okay. And it comes up again. And I think it comes up again with one of the films that we are going to talk about uh-huh. a little bit. And my gripe is this moving camera issue where nobody wants to just put that camera down and frame a goddamn thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, okay. This is something I've been complaining about for a long time, which is just, I don't know, just steady cam it. Just put it put it on a steady cam and film it and we'll figure it out later. So the film is uh, One Night in Miami. Oh, okay. And it's uh, directed by Regina King's her first film mm-hmm. and kind of a reimagined possible real life events kind of thing with, uh, right. uh, with Malcolm X and uh, Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke and uh, they all kind of get together in a hotel room where I'm just getting to that part where they're all gathering. And so the first half hour is the setup. And it'll be very interesting to see how does she handle like four big actors in right. one, one room? Will that change anything? But what I started to notice because the film had that, it didn't feel like the time period. It felt like a movie that's been made to day right. with with like the bright colors and the costumes but it just felt like but it's sort of a fantasy right so it's yeah but what i was noticing pretty quickly is that there really wasn't any confident framing i was watching that even in in still shots yeah it's moving a little bit like it, it's being, oh right yeah no it's, it's a on steady a steady cam, cam operator yeah there's no compositions mm-hmm it's sort of like, yeah, that looks good, which I realize, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of fun. We're picking on it. And I, I happen to like films that are directed with a very specific vision of what's going to be in the frame. And, you know, there are exceptions. Always exceptions. Right. If Maybe sometimes you use the steady cam to create a style. Right. Or you do handheld where yeah. your, your frame is a little more chaotic. But, you know, still, that's saying something pretty specific. I, I'm not giving up on one, one Night in Miami. Uh, there is some interesting stuff. I think the guy who plays Muhammad Ali is pretty great. Okay. Um, and, I'm, and I'm interested, but I don't know where I'm going to be at the end of the film. So I'll, I'll mention that next time. But I, but I mention this now because something caught my eye on Criterion. Mm. They, you know, they will promote kind of some of their specials that they're doing. And they are doing a whole series, 17 movies on Japanese noir. Oh yeah, okay. And I'm kind of like, hmm, Japanese noir. What <laughs> what is that? Yeah. And I I'm not going to I think maybe if you're intrigued enough and you go and explore, maybe we can do an episode on this. But I looked through the titles and I was struck because of the image that they used to promote it. Mm-hmm. And it was this very like super saturated technicolory looking uh, image. Okay. And I found the one film that I thought it must come from. And I said, I'm going to start. I'm just going to put this on and see what it's like. And it's a 1963 film called Youth of the Beast. Okay. Never heard of it. It's directed by this guy, Seijan Suzuki. 
and he was was big in this genre. He directed. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, Tokyo yeah. Drifter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I was. Th- yep. He also did this movie called Branded to Kill that was so off the wall that the studio then afterwards fired him. No more contract because it was so. It was just so out there. Really. I have not quite finished Youth of the Beast, but I I am floored by this movie. Okay. It is basically a loose modern day remake of Yoyimbo. Okay. Yeah. Because I recognized it before I even looked it up. I was like, this feels a lot like Yoimbo and uh, Fistful of Dollars and all those movies. So that's intentional, though. It's inspired by somehow. It's definitely intentional. It's fascinating is it stars this guy, Joe Shishido, who just passed away, by the way, this this past year at at 86. And And he's really weird looking. And I say this, he's got these huge, huge chipmunk cheeks. (laughs) <laughs> All right. And so I read, I'm reading up on this guy and it turns out that this became his trademark. He was this Japanese actor who was tired of getting like second tier roles uh-huh. and he wasn't getting recognized. Like he was just sort of another face in the crowd on his own. He went and got plastic surgery What? and got like early sixties cheek implants. What? And he, he had such a bizarre look that he ended up getting all these job roles as heavies and stuff. That is amazing. Yeah, so for that alone, you got to check this movie out. Wait, okay, which one was that? That was Well, he's he's in Youth of the Beast and he's also in Branded to Kill. Okay. He may be in some of the others. Uh, I, I did watch the 16-minute introduction that Criterion did to the whole series, and it's really fascinated me because just like the noir films that came out in America post-World yeah. War II, there was what I guess a lot of people don't really think about, but after World War II, there was a U.S. occupation of Japan for yes. several years yep. while they set up their new government. And so these have a little bit of a commentary on that. Oh, right. Uh, some of these films, and they they also are very sort of highly stylized in sort of trying to uh, copy like American gangster traditions and things. Right. And they're they're a little bit off the wall. They're not quite like like even the story of this is so basic. If you hear the dialogue, like he takes the genre and he dials it up to eleven. I'll, I'll check some of these out. So all I wanted to do is just sample this. In ten minutes, I was hooked because the visual style of this director is insane the colors the the jazzy music and what's the, what I what I love the mise-en-scene he has these elaborate setups uh, and dolly shots where you have action going on in a set in the front and then there's some other action going on like way in the background huh and it's so well orchestrated that like it, there's like a nightclub scene going on and then you go into the back room but now you're in the back room and you still see cuz they have windows you see what's happening on okay. in the nightclub however they make a point of saying how this is soundproof so that nobody can hear so you have this amazing loud nightclub in the background but you can't hear anything <laughs> except for, it's so i mean this movie is crazy yeah so it's remind again coming back to this point we keep making about framing Yes. And camera movement. And camera movement and how these things do tell story and therefore need to be used intentionally, not like it seems lazy to just film people talking. In this movie, what's going on is probably more interesting than the conversation that's going on. Well, exactly. But it's it's somehow bringing the conversation forward through the visuals. You get a real interesting sense of 
there's like a different culture going on in Japan, what they were looking to make a movie about. I mean, this is a two, three, five film, and he's got stuff going on every area of the frame. Wow. It's so wild. <laughs> so, I mean, I will have finished it by the time we would be able to do another episode, and I, I really strongly recommend you. That's Youth of the Beast is the one you're Youth talking about? Youth of the Beast. Start there, and then you might be intrigued to want to see more. I've seen High and Low several times. Yeah, I think that's on there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, I mean, Youth of the Beast is a, is a major discovery for me. Okay. I will definitely be watching it. I love it when there's a movie that's been sitting out there all the, right. all these years. I didn't know about it. And then what we were talking about with uh, the Joseph Losey movies like Mr. Exactly. Klein. Exactly. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm forever changed. Me too. Yeah. Man. So, yeah. Youth of the Beast. Definitely um, take a peek at that. I will be checking it out. All right. Well, now we're on the main event. Well, you know, we got it's like only yeah. half hour. We covered a whole bunch of stuff, right? We did. Uh, yep. I could I could go on about a movie I saw in Criterion that I didn't like, but I, but I won't. I won't. Let's talk about Paul Greengrass's News of the World. Okay. With Tom Hanks. Uh, I love Tom Hanks. You you love Tom Hanks? Okay, we got that out there. There's a there's a bromance. <laughs> there's a bro. No, I just uh, you know I find him. I, I understand why. He is who he is. He's very charismatic. He's very empathetic. No matter what the movie is, he's always good in it, right? He, exactly. He's always good, and he always brings something interesting to it. And you're there. Uh, you just, I, I'm willing to follow this guy just about anywhere. Yeah, that Mister Rogers movie. While I don't like the conventions around it, and the side story is really not very good. Damn it, every time that Tom Hanks is on screen, he doesn't really even look like Mr. Rogers, but he finds a way to embody him, and he really makes that movie worth watching. Yeah, well, yeah, that's one of my first thoughts on this News of the World movie. Now, I knew nothing about this going in. I, this is all I know. I knew it was about a guy who reads news to towns post-Civil War, and that somehow he has to bring some girl somewhere. That was all I knew. Yeah, that's more than I knew. I did know, unfortunately, due to a social media post, I knew that he was a uh, ex-Confederate with a heart of gold. Is that what the, that's what they're labeling? He's the ex-Confederate with a heart of gold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that, you know, maybe there's some like, uh, I don't know, there's some people have some issues with that, I guess. Uh, this is how I look. And I actually thought it was more fascinating that he was an ex-Confederate because his character seemed that he was more of a, a soldier mm -hmm. and he was living in Texas and he was doing what he thought was his duty, but that whatever happened to him during the Civil War and then things that happened in his personal life at the yeah. end of the Civil War, they forever changed him. Yes. And he didn't like it. Yeah. And so he was a lost guy and, and because he had a, um, a like a printing business before. Right, that he, that he loses. Yeah, and he, you're right, he's a lost guy. He's just a wanderer. He seems to really like interacting with the audience, though, that comes out to hear him read the paper. Those are my favorite parts of the movie. I almost wish there was more of that. Well, it, yeah, here's the thing. So I didn't know that it was about this guy who goes from town to town reading. So you must have been fascinated by that, right? I'm totally fascinated by it. It, it uh, uh, To me, you know, that's the really original and interesting part of this movie. And I wish there had been more of it. I do too. There's the one sequence where they go to this county that's kind of been taken over by this, I don't know how you describe him, this Mad Hatter. <laughs> and there's a, there's a scene there where there's conflict about him reading the news. Yes. 
it's really interesting because these people are completely cut off from the world and have their own newspaper that idolizes their the guy who runs the county. <laughs> right. They 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 they're 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 very isolated and he basically gives them what what he wants them to hear. You know, when he started in on that, I thought maybe it's going to be some kind of political thing that's going to like turn people against the guy, but it wasn't. He's just telling a good story. Yeah, but there's a little subtext. I think he was looking at, yeah. There is some subtext. There's definitely, no, he brings in some subtext. But then, you know, that sequence just sort of ends very suddenly. Well, this film, I don't want to say it's paint by numbers, but it definitely hits those beats that, uh, you know, it's like uh, what a post-Civil War uh, road trip movie is going to be like. <laughs> exactly. You can, you can pretty much ch- go down the checklist. It was kind of reminding me of uh, 1917. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, and now here's the next obstacle. And yeah, like you knew there would be that time that they roll into town and there's going to be those bad guys are going to be eyeing the young girl. You know that at some point their wagon is going to break. <laughs> oh, you know that that wheel is going to be loose and then it's going to go. <laughs> now, not to say that those scenes, though, weren't well done. No, no, no. It's a satisfying and enjoyable movie. It just doesn't really transcend into greatness. And of course, that's what happens with any of these movies that come out at the end of the year. There's that expectation that whatever's being delivered is going to somehow transcend. So you judge it unfairly a little bit because you are expecting more. Yeah. And that's really how I felt about uh, Midnight Sky. (laughs) Are we back on that? That, that that transcended into awfulness. <laughs> yeah, that was into awfulness. But so I don't know what my expectations were for this movie. I'm not generally a big Paul Greengrass fan. Oh, intriguing. Yeah. You didn't like uh, Captain Phillips? Didn't see Captain Phillips. Well, you come, come on now, dude. Yeah. That is a you know what? That was a movie for some reason I resisted seeing in the theater. Okay. Even though I loved United 93. And that movie is so intense. And Tom Hanks is fantastic in that. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually one of Paul Greengrass's best, I think. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the real issue with News of the World is that it's a road movie. I don't know why I should feel this way, but when I watched this movie, I did have to ask the question, since it didn't cover any new ground for me, I said, well, what was the purpose of making this? Even though I liked it, I didn't love it, but I I didn't love it. it. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And, you know... (laughs) At <laughs> when I got to the end, I had a lot of different feelings about how I thought it might or should end. Yeah. I'm just going to give away the ending. It, it, Ouch. It, I'm not totally giving away. I'm going to say this. It goes for the upbeat ending. Yeah. And it could have easily been heartbreaking and bittersweet, but it goes for it goes for the happier ending possibility. Yeah, which maybe also lends itself to the, again, my question is, what was the purpose of this movie? Well, I don't know what it was. I did like <laughs> it. And I really liked the girl, which I don't usually like little kids in movies, but Helena Zengel, who's a, a German actress. Yeah, she was great. She was great. She actually reminded me of Linda Manns. Oh, yeah. I you can know, see that. She just yeah, passed yeah, away yeah. last year and she was in Days of Heaven, but she had this very, her eyes were very, told a lot. Yeah. When yeah, she couldn't yeah. talk very much? No, but she really, and, and when she did talk, the, the way she struggles with English, and it was it was just, it was a really good performance. And But this movie did make me think. <laughs> oh? It made me think of Midnight Sky. Well, you know what? I mean, maybe because it was that young girl, but yet exactly. unlike, unlike Midnight Sky, it didn't go for those, hey, let's put on some sappy music and have a funny moment together. 
yeah, so it's like it, this movie could have been incredibly corny. It did have the banjo music. Can't have one of those Western movies without that banjo <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and, and you are. You're like waiting for the... I'm like, when is there going to be the scene when she meets up with the Native Americans again? Here's another thing. This is going to bring me back to why did I even mention One Night in Miami? Yeah. I had a lot of issues with the cinematography by Darius Wolski. I did too, but very mixed feelings. At times, I thought it was great. Well, so yeah, so lighting-wise, at times, especially the night stuff. The where night it was like stuff, a, yes. It had a really cool look. Yep. But then there were two things that bothered me. And some of this is the green grass's fault. Right. He is a guy, when we were talking about, you know, steady cam and movement. He's a handheld kind of guy. He's a handheld kind of guy. This is a movie that really should not be over steady cammed. Correct. And sometimes it was okay. And sometimes it was just like, it just felt like, I don't know, it didn't fit the style of the movie. And I think you're right. The night stuff and the stuff with him reading, all of that stuff, it's the stuff in the wagon that to me feels loose. Well, there's a couple of things that really bothered me. And this is like nitpicking and somebody that's listening who guess knows us by now will be like, <laughs> what? But there are two ways for a lens flare to be shown on screen. <laughs> and there's the purposeful lens flare where it's done for style. Right. And then there's the lens flare where it actually looks like a bad mistake and you want to fire the cinematographer. Right. This one features the latter. It does. I There's that shot out there in the middle. Maybe they couldn't find a way to not get the lens flare. But I was like, are you kidding me? This is this bad. You know what I'm talking I about. I know exactly. I had the same reaction when I saw that shot. I was like, what? It didn't blow up. I mean, so you have to really, that when I see those things, I'm like, this is unacceptable. I feel like all the stuff in the wagon is not shot with much... I don't know. It's just not well well composed. It's I guess it relies on the performances entirely in those moments. But I also had trouble with it kept going to these like big aerial shots. Yeah, yeah there, there was that those swooping. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking the about. Swooping aerial shots. Right. And then it would be close on them in the wagon. That's exactly the problems I had. I was thinking that those swooping shots and then, you know, those lens flares, which if it was Conrad Hall shooting it, there would be a purpose to the lens flare. There but would be a purpose to the lens flare. Yeah. And but OK, <laughs> I wonder if this goes back to your original point, which is what is the purpose of this movie and <laughs> why should we care? And I, I think that maybe sometimes the filmmakers didn't exactly know what the purpose of a scene or shot was yeah i mean that's where i started asking that question of hmm you know it's getting hard to distinguish if the pandemic wasn't happening which right. of these movies would actually show up in a theater or not right <laughs> and i'm like would this be a theater movie i don't know anymore when they don't see this to, would be a theater movie I, yeah i guess it would have been but i don't think it would have looked any better and it's just got you know Positive, but not overwhelmingly positive reviews. I mean, I it, sometimes I'd rather hate a movie if I can't love it, but this one I just couldn't really. Maybe if it wasn't Tom Hanks, I'd hate it. <laughs> I mean, that... I really did enjoy him. I enjoyed his character, and uh, you know, I I did find it. The parts that I found fascinating is that we got a a little bit of a look at what were those first several years yes. after the civil war things were kind of a mess and there's a lot of issues that it only kind of skirts the surface of but i thought they were fascinating and i, I think it's interesting the town crier idea 
it, the fact is a lot of people didn't know how to read. Well, exactly. Yeah. This And this was how this was the only way to find out what's going on in the world. So I, I, I really wished that it's like it was rushed in that he met up with the girl and her situation way too quickly. Yes. And there wasn't a lot of interesting plot development to get to that part. Well, the movie doesn't really have much of a plot. It's no. like there's a there's a direction it's going in. He's got to get her from point A to point B. And then there's obstacles they run into along the way. You know, that's a narrative direction, I guess. But it's not really a plot. Probably my least favorite part of the movie. <laughs> okay. Is uh is those creepy guys? Th- their first big obstacle is those creepy guys who like want to buy the girl. Well, yes. And it felt forced. It felt sort of like coincidental. It didn't have anything to do. It, it, it was it was like, oh, we need an obstacle. Let's just throw in three creepy guys and have a gunfight. Well, you know, that's the problem, though, with these road movies, right? It's no fun if they just get to point A to B without something happening. And you just knew he's there reading and you see that actor and yes. he's in the back and you're like, oh, boy, I know where this is going to go. But whereas I liked the one with the county that was so, so insular. Yeah. Because that actually had to do with... Well, I was nervous during that because they were so anti-Indian and she's speaking Kiowa. Yeah. So I was a little nervous for her. But that's about him reading the news and about information and about story. And that sequence makes sense. Whereas just the creepy guys in a gunfight, I didn't care. I was was like mad at that part of the movie. You knew it was coming. It's like, okay, and this is going to go on for a little bit. I did think that the way it was executed was. Oh, I I actually really liked the gunfight. That was exciting. Um, It was really well done. It gave an opportunity, though, for Tom Hanks and the girl to form a bond. Yes. Because after that, she really looked at him as somebody that she could trust and a protector. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was an important thing in terms of their relationship. I just felt like the way it was introduced in the script seemed too random to me. Yeah. Except that, you know, hey, look, the Wild West was a wild place and there was a lot of bad things. And I think that there was probably a lot of reality in that there's guys that would like to buy a young girl and God knows what would have happened to her. Right. I think they make it pretty clear. But I mean, you know, I mean, this was, (laughs) hey, man, the West was no uh, easy place. To, to make it out of the no, life, so no. I mean, look what happened to the poor girl, right? He leaves her for like a week, and then she's like tied up to a uh, tied up to a and, stick like a chicken. Yeah, that was horrible. When you watch a film like this, fair or unfair, compare it and go watch um, the Coen Brothers True Grit. Yes, and you oh, really yeah. see yeah. how things can yes. be handled because that is just to me a masterclass of how you handle a similar material. And my issues with this movie are largely. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. We tore apart the cinematography, too. That really bothered me. Okay. The next big film that we are going to talk about is Promising Young Woman. Yes. And well, first thing that I thought was very fascinating is that it's written and directed by a woman named Emerald Fennel. And yes. that's a kind of a cool name in itself. It is and a was, very cool name. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, who is she? Well, I'm a big fan of the show The Crown on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. And she plays Camilla Parker Bowles, and that's how I knew her. I didn't know that she did. I didn't know that she was also the showrunner for the uh, Killing Eve and right. other things. So that already was fascinating that she, you know, was making this film. And yeah. male, female, I don't care who's making the film. I'm just curious as to what is that film going to offer me. Right, but. Since in the last few years, there's definitely been a lot of awareness on women film directors and are they getting, you know, the due for the Academy, et cetera, um, since those are getting judged that way. Yeah. 
if I look at a movie like Promising Young Woman, I say, is there a difference if this movie was written and directed by a man? This, to me, is definitely a case where what I watched could not have been written and directed and been the same type of movie if it was a man. Totally agree. A woman makes all the difference in how you view the film. Yes. We've talked about this before, like the male gaze, right? And like how male can, directors can sometimes over-sexualize things in a weird way. Yes. And that doesn't happen here. In a weird way, it, in every aspect of this movie, this film in its entirety, there's the film that you get, and then there's the film that it's really about, and it's a commentary on how men view women. Yes. How women feel about that. Yes. And how they've been treated, and also taking in events over the past several years. Mm -hmm. And this is a film that's built into this revenge movie that is very complex because the lead character played by Carrie Mulligan as this uh, character, Cassandra, is so complex yes. in her own moral culpability, I guess. I, like I said, I went into this totally blind. So I didn't know what was going on with her at first. That's very interesting. Like, I didn't know that there was revenge or anything. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know what the backstory was. And so it was like slowly revealed to me over the course of the film. But at first I was like, is she a psycho? Is she like... I knew only a shade more than you did. I didn't know anything. So to me, the way the whole movie unfolded, I was surprised because I really didn't know where it was going to go. You know, exactly. And it, and it keeps going to kind of interesting places. And yeah, and I kept thinking, oh, well, how is how is this going to work? How is this going to go somewhere? And, you know, there's times when it's almost like uh, uh, here's the other thing is that I for some reason, my expectation was that this was going to be kind of like a uh, horror comedy. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that there was any social commentary. I didn't know. Uh, no, I was expecting something completely different with with expectations that fair or unfair. You didn't know what you were going to get. What, what, what are your what were your impressions of this movie? I have some I'm a little conflicted on parts of it. Interesting. Overall, I think it was pretty great. I, I really like her performance. I think the movie is saying some interesting things that need to be said, and it's doing it in a way that is dramatic, not preachy. Right. Right. And and it, yes, it's kind of a heightened reality a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I feel like it wasn't just it wasn't telling me how to think. It was showing me what the world is like, like you had just said, for how women feel about the way men take advantage of them. You know, what's interesting is that there are movies that you can say enjoy more than a yeah. movie like this. But what does it what what makes a good movie a great movie? And I think that's what this crosses into is yeah. that it really does make you feel a whole bunch of different things and yeah. that the movie lover in you wants the ending to almost have that happy Tom Hanks type ending yep. of News of the World. But she, being this uncompromising writer and director, Emerald Fennell, says, I'm not going to give you exactly what you want. Yes. And I think that takes guts. And initially, I was annoyed by that. Exactly, until that was so great, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you don't, because you, because, and that's because you're so invested, and you really like Carrie Mulligan's character. Yeah, 
However, she's like does things that are counter to what her beliefs should be in the movie. She does some terrible, despicable things in a sense to accomplish her goals. I mean, it is a revenge movie, right? Well, right. But like, like for instance, while it was amazing what she does with the daughter of the dean of the college, <laughs> you know, it, it puts her in some gray areas and what she does oh, yeah. to Alison Bree's character. Like these things she does in order to get the revenge that she seeks, she has to almost do some very bad things. But I think that is typical revenge movies. We we did an episode on re- revenge movies, right? And you kind of lose yourself. But the thing is, she's already lost herself. Well, I also think that there's a turn in the film um, that wasn't 100% unexpected for me because I yeah. kind of just knew the way this movie was going. But it was great is that her character does take it to the edge and then a turn happens just as she feels like she could kind of come back to her old self. Yes. That makes her realize she has to have an end game now. Exactly. And again, I, I, I thought this is, especially in the year we've had where I haven't got a lot of films that I could really say, boy, that was memorable. Yeah. To, to me, this is one of the strongest films. And I also thought from a filmmaking standpoint that Emerald Fennel really knew what she wanted to do with the camera. And the yeah, framing. totally agree. And so there's these little things like, but just like from from the set design and the colors and the costuming, everything is very well decided. It's done with intent and thought. Here's a very interesting thing. And this is where I think the very interesting commentary that Emerald Fennell makes. And this is really where, I mean, again, we think of an auteur. I think she really is the full author of this movie. Oh, yeah, totally Because she agree. wrote it and directed it. I mean, obviously, a lot of, a lot of respect to Carrie Mulligan because I just thought her performance was flat out amazing yeah but what what i really like is that carrie mulligan's character has to wrestle with this fact that she kind of obviously has this really dark vision and thought about men because of what they've done to her in the past and kind of how she lures men in bars and just she has no faith in them right so she meets somebody that she has now finally going to have the faith and it is very slow. It's very slow. She's very careful and cautious. And I think, that, you know, that was great. It like shows, you know, how shut down she's been. And, and it's just she's trying to slowly open up a little bit more. It, it offers up something I think that is re- why it's such a great movie, in my opinion, is that this moral dilemma. And I think, of course, of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing is right. that and i think this definitely reflects on that is that this guy he's made an amazing career for himself and he's gotten somewhere he has a family yep and whoever he was as a kid a youth college whatever what kind of nefario he might have been mm-hmm. there is that question of okay but can you then go on and be a different person and right so this movie challenges the audience to say we are faced with men who may be something now that they were different then and that where do we think of that? Can we dismiss their behaviors of the past if we fall in love with them or if they have become different people and respected members of the community or do they still need to face justice? And I think that Carrie Mulligan's character has to wrestle with that. And she, I think, does believe that there needs to be some sort of justice some some sort of consequence for this she absolutely 
does, something has happened to her friend, yeah. um, that lifelong friend. And the fact is, is that while all of these men have been able to go on with their lives and have great careers and have changed and like, oh, that was just my youth. Well, her friend was destroyed. Well, and I think, you know, what's really interesting thinking about this right now is, is the Alison Brie part that we were just talking about. Yes. Because that's the one where she does it, where she's taking revenge against a woman, not a man. And it's because the woman. Well, also, she does that with the dean, Connie Britton. Yeah, she does it with the dean, too. Yeah, those are sort of the two women. Some of the consequence she's bringing is just truth. Right. Right. right? Like, like she's just pointing out to the dean what's wrong here what the way it's done is so amazing and it's so yes. enjoyable but the ending what i even like in this ending is that emerald fennel is even able to recognize how the setup of the last act yeah. feels in some ways like many of those hollywood films from the 90s that we all love the romp and that he makes a commentary on that movie very bad things and i thought that was hilarious oh yeah yep. even and i'm like oh this is so great and while the ending it was a, it to me the ending is a bit of a shocker part of the ending total shocker for me it is shocking but i think it was shocking because you just don't expect a writer and director to go to that spot to go to that yeah and have I, the guts yeah and it really is yeah it's shocking yeah i mean so like it's it's a thing where i know people go in and everybody likes like all oh, that awesome revenge film where you can feel and like stand up and applaud and this film is not so easy it's not so easy at all. Okay, so one thing I really liked is that the revenge, a lot of the revenge along the way, and because most revenge movies are violent, a lot of her revenge was psychological. Yeah, and you're not, but you're, you're so uneasy because of the way it reveals itself. You're not quite sure what levels, and you do feel like she's getting like kind of upping the ante every time that she's oh she yeah she definitely feels that way yeah well like for instance there's that scene with the alfred molina and oh yeah he seems to show contrition and, yes. and remorse which is all that she's really looking for is that he's sorry exactly but then there's she gets outside of the apartment and you're not sure what was going to happen right oh i think you're sure what was going to happen well, i don't know i mean you don't know what was it that that guy was going to do Right. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> I don't know. That's the whole thing, right? So that's, but that's so, it's so great is that it doesn't offer you the answers that a lot of times people just expect a film will answer for you. Well, and that was an amazing scene too. It, you know, it's sort of like, I, I, I think that scene was absolutely necessary because you needed to show that some people have remorse and some people do feel bad about what they've done and they do try to get out of it and overcome it and seeing his character be that remorseful i guess it's one of many reactions to what happened or could happen and the film shows us sort of all the different possible reactions the people who laughed it off the people who covered it up the people who feel guilty the people who just thought it was a bureaucratic uh, issue to deal with. People were just in the room and felt like, well, if they didn't participate, they could just kind of pretend it never happened. Yeah, they didn't participate, but they kind of laughed and they sort of like went along with it. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, I also think this movie shows that like over time when bad things happen, there are people that literally will block it out. And I think several of the characters yes. literally blocked out the past, filtered it out because they never really wanted to deal with how bad it was. 
it's the viewing experience is one thing, but when I really think about, wow, all this movie achieves, and we ask this question of news in the world, was this film necessary? And we were kind of <laughs> yeah. like, well, now it's entertainment. But this film, I feel is, is necessary. Very necessary. You know, it offers up something that from a, from when, when, when you have nothing but male writers and directors, you don't get a movie like this. No, you don't. This, yeah, that's, th- this is absolutely from a female point of view. And not a shy one. Nope. This is bold and provocative and packs the punch of a lot of truth. So what I'm excited excited about, right, is, uh, you know, it's not been a lot to get excited about with uh, this year's delayed Oscars that are going to come out in, not in March. This year is the first time we have a legitimate shot of two women being nominated for Best Director for their movies. And mm-hmm. one is Promising Young Woman mm-hmm. and the other is the uh, nomad land which i have not seen yet oh yeah yeah and so that would be very exciting because these are these are just it's not about whoa this is a chance to have diversity in the director's category this is probably two of the best films right getting justly nominated and it's never happened before so promising young woman how is it doing critically do you know have you read reviews oh i think it's doing pretty well yeah okay yeah. especially yeah people really i mean i guess there's always somebody that doesn't like it but uh yeah it has a lot of champions you know who doesn't like it who stephanie zachariah really she does not like this movie what was her <laughs> yeah, let's get her i on got here. a few bones to pick with stephanie no <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure she's pretty busy with some other awards podcast but uh yeah she doesn't like it that much but a lot of people do but i think it's helpful when i get to talk to you about it and tell you like let's let's, let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about why we really liked it or didn't like it or something and just it's weird it's just it's a movie that got me thinking about a lot of me things me too i found stephanie's quote okay do you want to hear it yeah like do i want to hear it yeah i do i do want to hear it This is lip gloss misanthropy packaged as feminist manifesto. Clever, but not smart. (laughs) Cynical without being perceptive or particularly passionate. Women are angry for good reason. They also deserve better movies than this one. (laughs) She writes really well. I couldn't write like that. She does. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but but also if you break it down, what is she really saying? You know, I don't know. Um, Uh, She's saying it didn't work for her. She thought it was cheap. Well, I think. What, what this is what I think that she I'm gonna just I'm gonna tell you what I think a woman <laughs> you're gonna thinking, mansplain. I'm gonna mansplain it. But if I was to break down what I would think is that I, I I think Stephanie doesn't like sort of saying, Oh, I'm a woman. I need to love promising young woman. Right. She re, she rebels against that 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 desire to have to love something just because a uh, it was written and directed by a woman and it's about these, you know, subjects. That's not why I loved it. I just thought it was a right. you know, I, I thought it was a very very sneaky movie and that because you said with revenge films i have an expectation of what that's going to be like and then it even in the very opening seconds it teases you where the, what yes. we thought like what what we think is happening to these men that she lures in and it's not exactly what we thought well i think yeah, that's really important like in the first one it cuts before you see what happens yeah and then it just cuts to her like making a check mark in her notebook. And I was like, what is this a serial killer movie? Yeah, what is going on? So it was very fascinating. Beyond all this, Emerald Fennel was creating something where she says, Hey, fellas, next time you're in a bar and you see that person drunk, maybe you want to think twice because you just don't know. And I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. That you know, it yes. might put something into the psyche of these men that 
if 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 a guy watches this movie and he feels like to be a little sexist against guys, well, you know what? Guess what? This is how women feel like through the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly did not feel that way. I felt like, yeah, this pretty much is exposing, you know, the way a lot of men behave. I also love the title, which is you, you know, get a little bit deeper understanding that it's yes. a takeoff on that incident that happened where the poor girl was raped. And, and uh, basically when they were defending this guy was the idea is that we don't want to destroy the career of this promising young man. <laughs> right, right. You know, and then right. here's a story about a, 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 a young, promising young woman who's, whose whole life is uh, turned upside down. And then it also subsequently destroyed her friend, Carrie Mulligan, in a way. Yes. And uh, and I also love that scene with Molly Shannon, who played her, oh, her yeah. friend's mom. And it was like really worried about her that, that, her, that this Cassandra cannot move on. Right. That she's become obsessed with this over the years and she's just not getting on with her life. Which is true. Yeah. So, I mean, so to me, it's like, wow, this movie has so many things going on. Well, it's really complicated. It's, it, 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 yeah, it's not just like an easy answer to any of this. No. It's, it's about trauma. It's about grief. It, it has a lot of emotional layers. And it's funny at times. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's not a comedy for sure, but it definitely, definitely not definitely, a comedy, but it definitely has funny stuff. Tonally, it's not dark. I mean, the, st the the stuff it's dealing with is very dark, but it doesn't it doesn't like try to you know oppress you with negative feelings or. But let's put it this way: I I cannot wait to see what the next film that Emerald Fennel does. Absolutely, totally agree. Yeah. You got any other uh, last tidbits or anything that uh, you know things you're looking forward to watching or any of that other stuff? Well, the, just the things you said today. Youth of the Beast. I am looking forward to Frederick Wiseman's City Hall. I do want to watch that. Yep. But it's, you know, a four-hour documentary, so I'll definitely be watching that in pieces. I know. You know, if they only had part one, two, three, and four, you yes. binge it. But when it's four I, hours, it, you're like, what? <laughs> exactly. I don't know why it isn't. I mean, it's not like it's coming out in theaters. I know. It's a strange thing, uh, that psychology. Like, for instance, uh, over the weekend, Netflix had a four-part, and so it wasn't quite four hours, but it felt, it was. But we we binged the whole thing in the afternoon. It was on the Night Stalker. Oh, yeah. 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 But exactly. Like, yeah, I binged that in an afternoon, and, and it would be much easier to do. <laughs> but if they said Night Stalker, it's four hours. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I can't oh, watch that yeah, right now. Yeah, I can't now. get into it. <laughs> Which is why I think it was smart that uh, Netflix did with Tarantino's hateful eight they broke it up into parts yes and it was interesting because he could put a few extra things in there and stuff but it actually worked as as a multi-part thing well sure that's the way you're used to watching stuff that's over two hours by the way as <laughs> we are parting there speaking of tarantino um he's our next guest no <laughs> no i would love to have him come on uh, you never know sure, right? sure. he's welcome on the show anytime <laughs> it'd be so fun but uh we my son the oldest is 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 a tarantino fan Right. Yes. Anything he, he he watches of Tarantino's he likes, and he's now realizing he's close to seeing all the movies. Oh, we want to try to. He wanted to finish up watching him uh, on Amazon Prime. Reservoir Dogs is on. Oh, okay. And so he'd never seen his first movie, right? And my wife had not seen it like since she was in college. Okay. I watched it a couple of years ago. Yeah, I watched it a couple of years ago. So I watched it again. It's funny. This is a movie you can really watch, and you know this is as low budget as it comes. Yeah. And his first movie, but even then you see that he had a command of what he wanted in the frame. Uh, absolutely, yeah. 
And you talk about a movie that's like, except for the flashbacks and things, which was smart to kind of keep pulling it in so it didn't feel like just one set the whole time, is that he figured out how do you film and edit actors in in a scene, in a setting where it doesn't just feel like a play. Exactly. Yeah. In a small set. And how do you make that cinematic and tell the story through the visuals? And he totally does. I see where good things happen for that uh that director uh, <laughs> i mean it's amazing like reservoir dogs was such had such an impact when it came out yeah and it, it was funny when it came out it, it was only in a few theaters it didn't do well but like instantly as soon as video it had a cultural impact yeah and and people were talking about uh, you know it, it it got attention uh people were talking about it it was you know this, yeah there the, it was an independent film that got a lot of time and i it, like almost immediately after it came out tarantino was on jay leno you know it's funny before it even I, before it came out in the theaters i watched him on that it was because i was so fascinated because i guess his name i was like quentin tarantino that's a who is this guy i want to yeah. see what he looks like and he was promoting the movie and i watched that <laughs> yeah i watched it too and I, it was really uh I, I mean that's a big deal for like an independent <laughs> low budget film director to go on jay leno like i don't know how they uh how they worked <laughs> i don't watch these late night shows so i mean emerald fennel could be all over the place and i wouldn't know <laughs> that's true yeah that's true i don't know <laughs> yeah i really don't i mean I, I, I there's so many of those i don't i don't watch any of them but i'm also older i don't stay up that late and i just, yeah i don't watch any of them yeah i just don't have i mean what about that for college right in college yeah i used to i used to back in the day i watched some letterman and, oh my god uh, every night we watched letterman uh, you know, i even watched johnny carson Watch the cars, and I remember, you know, that goodbye week and all that stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Reservoir, there's only one part at the end, though. There's this bad boom mic shadow. <laughs> oh, there is? Okay, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. Funny, yeah. You can see it. You're kind of like, what's that stick that's kind of bobbing up and down? And then at the very <laughs> end, you can see it actually get yanked up, and you see the, the top. But, you know, I'll forgive him for that. It's a low-budget movie. I'll forgive him for that, yeah. So, yeah. I saw that. And then, of course, I mentioned at some point during the show, there was this bad movie. It's on Criterion, and I was just curious as to why it was being promoted. Like, what is this? Right. And I feel like it's the kind of movie that you might stumble across and watch, so I'm kind of giving you a warning not to. <laughs> it's called Always Shine. Never heard of it. On Criterion? Yeah, it's from 2016, and I'm like, well, what's this Criterion showing it? And I think the only reason that they honestly put it on there is because it was directed by a woman named Sophia Takal, and they thought, well, they're featuring women filmmakers, right? right? This is a movie that's not very good. <laughs> okay. It's, it's basically like two actresses. And the reason why I want to watch is I like the two actresses, uh, Caitlin Fitzgerald and Mackenzie Davis. Right, right, right. I don't know if you know who Ka Caitlin Fitzgerald is. I don't. She's been in a lot of stuff, um, stuff that I've watched that you may not have watched. But uh, I'm always, I always like seeing her in a film so uh, or a TV show. So I thought, oh, I'll watch this. And they play two not A-list actors. They're, okay. they're like one's maybe a B-list, does a lot of horror movies, and then the other one is just like, you know, taking short films, whatever she can get her hand on, trying to make it in the door in Hollywood, and they get together for some like girls weekend uh, up in Big Sur, and one's so jealous of the other one that things go horribly wrong. Is there a story? Not really. It's like then <laughs> something happens, but it happens too early, and then there's another like 25 minutes that kind of go into a weird direction that doesn't make any sense. And at the end of it, you're really like, well, what was the purpose of this movie? I guess this is going to be a new question for us going forward. What is, is the purpose of this film? <laughs> did this need to be made? Well, like News of the World, yeah. you can actually see where, like, it's got a full, complete story and, you know, people yes. who like that kind of thing. This movie, I really was left going, what was the point of this movie? 
I'm not I'm not watching it. I'm heeding your warning. Well, but if you watch the first 10 minutes, right, it, it's kind of set up in a way that's intriguing. It looks like, hey, maybe this is going to be about something that could be very interesting, a psychological battle between these two um, friends that are in kind of in rocky ways. But then afterwards, you're like, okay, I don't understand what the point was. And then it was, there's an actor that shows up that's kind of weird and creepy looking towards the end. Uh And I'm kind of like, why the F is this guy in the movie, right? (laughs) And then I find out that he's the writer of the movie. So he put himself somehow in this film and it and it really it, it's, and he doesn't need to be there. No. And then the whole part of this film, it's just a weird movie. Maybe it's an exercise. If you want to see something and maybe you can tell me what the point of the movie was. OK, <laughs> I need help on this. Quite honestly, always shine. Um, but I love okay, Mackenzie Davis and I like Caitlin Fitzgerald, but can't get behind this. All right. Well, that has been fun. Yeah, we should wrap it up. Yeah, probably. I was just waiting for it to hit the 90-minute mark. Then I know oh, we've okay. completed the show. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, hey, StuffWeSeen.com is a place where you can see all the episodes or he, hear them, I guess. Uh, we got tons of them up there. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I yeah. know, we might have to get more bandwidth on the site. We've got like 90-something episodes up there. Wow. Uh, it's a lot. I know. Uh, who knew? In two years, you get it. Yeah, this is episode <laughs> officially episode 94. Wow. Okay. So we're coming up on it. We got to do something special for 100. For 100. Yeah. We'll have all our guests like Bill from Queen back. Yes. <laughs> we'll have 25 guests on at the same time. Yeah. We'll get the, get the millennial. We'll pull him away from his uh, Twitcher account or Twitch account, whatever it is he got there going on. All right. Uh, and feedback and stuff we've seen. Certainly, you know, send us a note. Tell us what you want to hear and tell us how much you loved News of the World and are mad that we weren't huge fans of it or how much you hated Promising Young Woman and that we're wrong. <laughs> tell us we're wrong. Yeah. Or, hey, Always Shine is the best thing I've seen on Criterion. <laughs> Why are you bagging on poor Caitlin Fitzgerald and Mackenzie Davis? We love them. I love yeah. them too. I just didn't love Always Shine. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.